has anybody seen the trailer for a movie coming out called Noah? Okay, one person. You guys need to watch TV. I'm just kidding. I don't think it's on TV. I think it may be only on the internet. That's where I saw it. Um, now, I'm not, uh, this isn't a Grace Christian Fellowship endorsement of that movie because I haven't seen it. I've only seen a trailer. However, that movie uh, is going to do something that's never really been done before. They've done the Ten Commandments. And uh, who was the guy who did, who played? Charlton Heston. Okay. Charlton Heston did a great job with Moses. Now, they're casting Russell Crowe as Noah. So, uh, you know, who knows what, what's going to happen. But I, I, I would encourage you this week, I would encourage you this week to go look at that trailer. Uh, and, and it's not going to be perfectly literate uh, or, you know, accurate in terms of the literary concerns of Genesis. But I do think it's going to communicate the depth of man's sin. I think they're going to get that part right. The reason I believe that is Darren Aronofsky, the director, his previous films are all about the destruction of fallen man. And I thought it would, uh, I, you know, it's just kind of timely that that uh, trailer was released that this last week, because I had it in my heart after speaking last week about li living a life filled with thanksgiving to also talk about just how we are supposed to live our life. Um, how, do, how does the New Testament say we're supposed to live in, in the context of being participants in a local group of the people of God or an expression of his church. And so, so the psalm that we read today, um, it says here uh, that um, the Lord uh, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Paul, we're going to get to this in Ephesians, but Paul talks about those who are dead in their trespasses and sins being children of wrath. And that is a very sobering phrase, children of wrath. In this trailer, the reason I brought it up, there's this, there's this period, I guess, I, I, you know, I haven't seen the movie, but there's this period where Noah is kind of hearing God speak to him. But I don't think in the movie they portray it as this, you know, thundering bass-centric voice, you know, Moses, you know, none of that that stuff. I think th what they're saying is Noah heard God's voice through dreams. And in a few of these dreams, uh, Russell Crowe, as Noah, has the, you know, has these moments where he hears God say he's going to destroy the earth because of man's wickedness. And at first, he doesn't really get it. And there's this one blimp on the trailer of these huge balls of fire coming toward the earth. And um, it just reminded me of a time, I actually had a dream very similar to that. I don't think that's how the end of the age is going to happen. But the idea that, that there, are, there are people who are children of wrath, they deserve nothing from a holy God other than discipline and judgment if they do not turn to his son and if they do not seek to escape. Paul says, we who have fled from the wrath to come, that, that phrase, he's identifying himself and the church as those who are escaping the wrath that's coming on that generation by, by seeking after Christ and his will. And so in, in the same way, I think that movie is going to just communicate some really precious things that we don't really touch on that much uh, in, in modernity. We, we kind of see God as just a God of love who has no justice and there's, there's never going to be a final reconciliation of all debts at the end of the age. 
And I think that the New Testament presents an overwhelmingly clear picture that yes, there will be, God will come, Jesus will judge on a great white throne, and he will put the sheep and the goats on opposite sides, and there will be punishment for the wrong that's done against his people. And so this psalm is an amazing psalm. It says at the end, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. The idea that we will see, see the Lord uh, face to face, and, and the difference in this psalm and, and in this passage in Ephesians is our actions. Not that they lead to salvation, but they are merely indicative, or they, they merely are evidences of what's at work in our heart. So with that, um, I thought it would be helpful to examine this passage in Ephesians to talk about how we are to live, how we are to live knowing that there is a God who judges, and there is a God who judges all, all of men, um, and he has no partiality. If you, if you believe that you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then live as if nothing has ever happened, no change in the way that you uh, live, no change in what your desires are, no change in your goals, aspirations, future plans, then you really have not been converted to Christ. And I think Paul makes that point clear as, as he's about to talk, we once walked and, and now there's been this change. And so I wanted to highlight these passages today. And this idea of good works as being an overflow of our conversion, not, again, we don't do good works to obtain conversion, but rather the good works that come out of our life are evidences of the inward work that God has done for us, that he alone accomplished, that we didn't accomplish on our own. And so so the, I thought it would be helpful, you know, in our church, we've got a... a a huge history um, of of doing uh, of doing these things um, in terms of practical service. Right? We, we've we've emphasized for years a vision here at, at Grace Christian Fellowship of of reaching the lost, impacting those who are broken, restoring lives, discipling people, young men and women who who need to grow up. I I myself was one of the prime receivers of that grace for four to five years. Uh, at the beginning of our church, I had a lot of growing up to do. And, and the Lord has done a, an amazing work in my life um, in order that I could, you know, share with others. But it, it can't be the case that we have this history of doing good works and forget where we've come. Another reason I chose this psalm is it, is it, is it, uh, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a pertinent word to us even in the midst of all our giving and serving at, at Rock Campus Fellowship and with the children uh, down here at the school, if we forget the core of why we do those things, those things will, will die. Those are merely leaves of the tree, and the root is the gospel, and that's what we're going to look at today. So my prayer is that it would never, ever be said that our church used to have a ministry to the poor and to the broken and downtrodden. I, I pray that that would never, ever happen, that God would, by his grace, keep us in his will. So we're going to look at three things today in this passage in Ephesians. Um, the first thing we're going to look at is the, the characteristics and the nature of the old way of living that Paul talks about. We're going to look at the gospel which was performed for us by God. It, it is his gospel, it is his message, and it is his actions we're going to look at how we did not participate in any way 
in how we, we came to know who, who God is and, and who his son Jesus Christ is. And then finally, we're going to look at the, the future goal of all of these good works. That is, why do we do these good works? What is the purpose? And, and what, what is the reason for doing anything at all? You know, if, if the only thing that you're looking for in life is a ticket to heaven to escape fiery hell, then why don't you just, you know, commit suicide after you get saved? What is the purpose of God keeping you on the earth after he's recreated you in his image, in, in Jesus Christ? What, what is that purpose? We're going to look at that today. So the walk of sin Paul talks about, he says at first, you know, this, that there's this walk of sin. Now, if you, if you know anything about the scriptures, we started in chapter 2 in Ephesians, so I need to give you a little bit of a backstory on, you know, the letter that Paul wrote. So Paul had visited the city of Ephesus. He had done a great missionary activity. If you've never read the story in Acts about the amazing spiritual transactions that took place in the city of Ephesus, you need to. It's amazing. At one point, when Paul and his buddies are there sharing the gospel, it says that there's a, that a riot broke out in the city square because the, the apostles were saying to get rid of your idols. And all these idol makers saw that their economy was being ripped away from them. And because they loved money and they were devoted to these idols, it says that they rioted in the square and they shouted, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says that they shouted it for hours. Can you imagine this? Thousands of people in downtown Dayton at the corner of Maine and Monument rallying and saying great is the uh, Masonic Temple or whatever, you know, is the chief idol of Dayton, Ohio. Can you imagine that? Such, and, and, and you are like right there and they're angry at you. Thousands of people shouting for hours that, that, that their God, who isn't a God at all, is the only, is the only great God. I mean, you know, we talk about persecution, uh, and, you know, you and I think that's like getting a bad mention on Twitter or Facebook. This is thousands of people who are rioting and about to turn violent, who are warring against them. And Paul, Paul talks about this as, as warring with evil beasts uh, in, Ephesians, in Ephesus. And so that's this context. These Gentiles have come out of being idol worshipers who were living in the lusts of their flesh and evil passions, and they've been brought to know, uh, they've been brought out of that to know Christ. And Paul is writing this letter in order that the church of God at the city of Ephesus would be established and put in order. So that's the context of, of this chapter. He reminds them that they sinned in a, a significant way beforehand, and there's a few things that we're going to notice. Um, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. And then he, he, he gives two reasons uh, for the way that it was a walk. Following the course of this world, who's ever used a map thing on their phone? Okay, It's like you pull out your phone and you dial up the, the world system and you say, how should I live my life? And then they give you turn-by-turn -turn navigation in iniquity. That's exactly what he's trying to paint the picture of. Now, that sounds funny, and it's absolutely irrational, but it's the way that we w used to walk. He, he says, not only were you following the world, you were following the prince of the power of the air. That's a phrase to just describe Satan as the chief of de demons or the chief of, of evil, among whom we all once lived. So the, the, the things to notice first is that they are dead in sin. 
Okay, so, so Paul is continuing this letter, and he's giving a foundation for what God has done in joining these Gentiles to these Jews, making them into one, and the foundation is the gospel. And the foundation of the gospel is that those who are hearing the gospel, before they turn in faith to Christ, they are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are absolutely dead. They have nothing that they can do in righteousness towards God. And this is a twofold death. The first nature of this death is that they were, uh, that they are descendants naturally of Adam. Adam being their federal head had sinned in the garden and, and instituted a great rebellion on the earth against God's order, over t- toppling over that order and substituting his own will instead of God's. And because we are children of Adam, we follow in that same fall. Adam was corrupted in that, in his nature in that day, and he truly did die. Now, there's a, a, a type of death that the Hebrews teach called a spiritual death, and there's a death that the Greeks talk about as thanatos, so it's a se- separate word, but it just means a bodily death. Now, the, the trick that Satan used in that day to persuade uh, Adam to overthrow God's order is that he accused God of being a liar, and he said, the day that you eat of that tree, God knows you won't die. And Satan was, in a way, sort of right, but that's the greatest and most insidious evil is a falsehood that can, contains just a little bit of truth. Adam truly did die, and he was corrupted. And he fell from the original nature and image in which he was made. So, so by, by extension, all those who come from Adam are, are corrupted. It's kind of like this. Every seed brings forth after its own kind. Adam, in his rebellion, removed himself from God. God comes and curses both the man and the woman and the ground and the serpent, and they are, they are put under this curse. And Adam, by pushing God away, pushes him in, himself into an, an existence that is, is subhuman. It's, it's, it wasn't God's purpose for man to, to uh, be destroyed and to fall away. And, and so with that in mind, you know, God's, God's idea of his order, the way that he wanted the world structured, was to have him be the head over Adam and Adam to be the head over all of creation. And when Adam fell, he handed that power over to Satan, and Satan has now usurped that authority and become, as it were in this chapter, the prince of the power of the air. So not only have they uh, been born in the image of Adam, just as you and I were, Paul says that they went and, and uh, walked in their own trespasses and sins. So this is a, is a double effect here. They were corrupted because of their, their federal head, Adam, in his sin, and they continued in that corruption and added to it the weight of their own transgressions and sins. If you never examine the word transgression, it literally means uh, there is a boundary line or an established order, and you are violently attacking that system and attempting to overthrow it. This is exactly what the scripture says sin is. It is not just a mere uh, fault or getting it wrong or a mistake. It is rather a willful transaction or a transgression against God and his holiness. And so Paul's saying to these Christians, you once walked in this way. Now, <clears throat> with that, you know, this is this idea of the, the way in which they walk. Where do you walk on? You walk on a road. This is nothing other than what Jesus said is the way to destruction. He said the way is broad and, and, and many go by it. That leads to destruction. 
And so these unconverted sinners who live in a way, in this way, it says that they walk. Well, what do you do when you walk? You make progress going somewhere. These people who are walking in this manner of life, it's not just that they sinned every once in a while. It's that they were sinning in such a way as to continually compound their debt that they owed to God. They they were uh, progressing in their um, in their evil. The scripture talks about these people as the, the children of snakes, and, and they breathe out or they spew out poison out of their mouth. They call, the, the scripture calls these people inventors of evil. That's, that's the reason why I think this Noah movie is going to be so good, because it, it really demonstrates to us in a way that we sometimes don't see today, just the, the evil that is at work in, in the sons of disobedience. I'll, I'll watch it, and after I watch it, if I don't like it, I'll publicly repent. But, but I think it's gonna. I think they're gonna do a good job. I hope they're gonna do a good job. So not only are they they walking in trespasses and sins because they've been corrupted in their nature, they're now following this course of the world, and this this direction of the world is contrary to the world to come. The the distinction here in this phrase is the the way of this world. And he says this world, talking about the world that is here at hand, uh, over and against the world that is coming. And so, you know, this world, we know its ways are, are uh, leading to a destruction, but we're encouraged in 1 John to, to, um, to not follow after that way. And indeed, Christ even says, take, take uh, courage, for I have overcome the world. This idea that we as believers, we don't fear reverting to this uh, way of living, but rather we need to re-examine it time to time to, to remember the great salvation that God has done. So not only have they been sinning in a worldly way, they've been sinning in a way that's actually sa- satanic, or if you will, demonic, in, in that not only are they following the course of this world, they're also following the prince of the power of the air. So Paul here is describing fallen nature, fallen creation's uh, structure. You have men and women living on the earth. Uh, When I say men, you know, I'm talking about mankind. You've got men and women who are living on the earth, uh, and they are corrupted in their nature. They they have fallen from grace, and they need redeemed. But But they're not redeemed currently. They're following after the way of the world, the way of the world and its mindsets and the way that it operates and the core values that it has. And not only that, they're being led by this prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And so this is a this is a structure uh, of society. This is a competing worldview. It's a competing uh, establishment of, an, of a different order against God's order. And so this threefold system that I've been talking about, this is a foil or it's an it's a, uh, antithetical image, if you will. What happens when you look in a mirror? Well, you, you put up your right hand and the mirror puts up its left hand, right? It's, it's kind of like this. Satan and his system are diametrically opposed to God in his, in his created order, but they are not diametrically equal in their power uh, and in their, in, in their uh, ability to affect their will on the earth. God is supremely powerful. However, Satan and his system, his created, you know, his not created order, his destroyed order is, you know, intentionally against at every point God in his kingdom. And so, 
Fallen men, they're intoxicated with the spirit of rebellion. They follow the ways of this world and, and they're led in by Satan all the way to their end of destruction. And this is exactly the cosmic level of thinking in which the, the plan of redemption is brought into. So God's order, however, is redeemed men being filled with his spirit, learning his word through his church, imitating the ways of the world that is to come. We, you and I, we're not supposed to live according to the ways of this world. We're supposed to live according to the ways of the, the age to come. That word in the scriptures and in the creeds, that word that is world and age, uh, that's the same word uh, back in the original Greek. It's aeon, and it just means time period and place. Uh, the Greeks, they had a you know, we've kind of uh, diverted into three dimensions and then a fourth of time, right? So there's this place, there's this moment here, and those, those are separate. But in their thoughts, uh, aeons or ages, those are time places. Um, and, and so Paul says that, uh, that these people are following the course of this world in contradistinction to the world to come. And so it's exactly this imitation that Paul is trying to say is important to establish in the church. You're supposed to live as if the, the age to come is really coming as it is. And so, you know, Paul then goes beyond just identifying these sinners as you all, right? You know, this is, an, this is a letter from the apostle to the church, and he says, you formerly walked. And then in verse 3, he does this amazing thing. He says, among whom we all once lived. He is identifying with those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. The apostle, the teacher, the pastor is never above the gospel. And so he says, among whom we all once lived. Although Paul came from the people of Israel, being educated among the chief rabbis, he himself was filled with the spirit of, of the devil, and he was in this demonic drunkenness, bloodthirsty after the church, right? What, did ha what happened in, in the book of Acts? We were presented with this guy named Paul who was going out murdering, uh, uttering murderous threats uh, against the church, and he was carting off these Christians and throwing them in jail, and if he could, he was you know, executing them. And so Paul here identifies with those who were once dead, and though he, was, he knew the law, he didn't know it according to God's righteousness. This is an amazing and great comfort to us. Think about it this way. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're at all struggling with this idea of that God loves you and, and, and is totally transforming you from being dead in your sins, Paul, the man who wrote the, the majority of the New Testament epistles, Paul, the man who did arguably the most number of church planning in the, uh, in the ancient world and, and established the church in many countries, he was once dead in his trespasses and sins, and the very same resurrection power which recreated Paul recreated you. There is no distinction. Paul, God says, I do not you know, count uh, with partiality. I don't judge with partiality. If, if Paul was recreated in Christ's image, and he did great exploits, I too can do great exploits through my God. That is the great encouragement of, of true honesty among apostolic figures and pastors. It gives people encouragement knowing that if this, if this great sinner uh, was able to be changed, so can I. And so the very same God who saved Paul, he saved me, and it's this salvation which we now turn to. Paul, in, in 
verse 4 <clears throat> says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So while you were dead, Paul says, God made you alive. We're going to examine this in detail. God's, it says at first, God is rich in mercy, but how is God rich in mercy? Does it mean that he has like compounding interest from eternity past and his bank account is really big in mercy? No, God's mercy is a mercy that accords with the divine nature. And what I mean by that is it is uh, God in himself, in his divine nature, is infinite in his love, mercy, grace. And not only is he infinite in his mercy, but his mercy is infinitely powerful and effective. He's great in mercy in that he freely gives of his own in various ways to a multitude of persons. And what that means is that God is not just dispensing grace to you now. He has been since the, you know, since he began to, to bring the promise about right after the fall. And even in creation, he was merciful in giving us existence. And so God's mercy is not being exhausted as we move through, through time and through history. This giving is because, Paul says, because of his great love. And the love of God is a divine love. Not only is, is the divine mercy that God has uh, inexhaustible and immeasurable and uh, unknowable in its entirety, but also God's love is a divine love. It's a love that we cannot even fully emulate perfectly. We know, you and I know, that there are bonds of love between brothers. We call that uh, Philo or, or uh, you know, the city of Philadelphia, brotherly love. There's, there's the love between spouses, which is eros, the erotic love or passionate love. And then there's this love that is agape. It's brotherly love. But I believe that the scriptures present the love of God as a love that transcends those words because of the great nature of God's love in unfolding redemptive history, bringing his son to the earth and redeeming us. You, you have to see this. Paul says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay. Has anybody seen, um, there's this new show, is it, what's it called, The Walking? The Walking Dead. Okay, I don't do zombie movies. I don't like zombie, I don't like horror films. But I think one thing, I, in fact, I don't think the horror genre has ever contributed anything of, of substance and worth and merit to the overall, you know, philosophical arguments of life. However, they have one great theme, and that is zombies. Okay, now Paul says, Paul says that, they, that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. Okay, so these people who are dead are walking around as if they're human, but they're not truly human. They're walking around dead in their trespasses and sins. And the love of God is this, that while we were dead, God raised us up together with Christ. Okay. If, if you were God, you know, imagine, for example, your created order had, had been established and you had made humans in your express image and, and given, them the, um, given them authority over the earth. And, and now they've turned away, they've been corrupted, and they're now there's this necrotosis going on in their bodies. They're, they're, there's flesh-eating bacteria and gangrene filling their nature. And they've, they've completely run away from your intended purpose. And they're just living life as if they're brainless and have no rationality. They're dead in their spirit. And this is the condition that God finds humanity in and yet does not re is not revolted by that scene. He's not repulsed by that. 
he instead turns toward that. That is divine love. You and I, when we experience, even if we're created in Christ Jesus, when we experience those who are poor, destitute, broken, sick in their body, leprous, etc., we have a tendency to want to turn in revulsion. I, um, I'll never forget this man I met. I, well, I didn't meet him. I, I just saw him in, in Portland. And, you know, in Dayton, we have a few homeless people. But in this one guy that I saw on the streets in Portland, he was just lying on the sidewalk next to a stop sign. And he had like three or four bottles of malt liquor uh, next to him that he had consumed and was just in the heat of summer in Portland, like 95 degrees, probably like getting extremely dehydrated. And you could smell him from like five or six feet away. That is the image that Paul is trying to say. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You had nothing redeemable about yourself. There was nothing that was appealing to you that God should take notice of you. This is the context which Paul is trying to make plain. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And and in that moment, I, I looked at him and I knew two things at once. This is a terrible, terrible reminder of how far we fell. From, from the call that God had on us as his image bearers. And this person needs extreme help, and it's really gross. In, the, in that moment, I felt so many uh, emotions, both to, to stop, but you know, I was on a business trip and walking with other business people at my company, and, and yet this person needs help, and, and yet I'm a visitor in this town. I don't even know where a shelter is to take him to let alone get him anything. Uh, and and so, so this is the, the emotion that Paul is trying to evoke when he's saying they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're like zombies. They're just going about life, living with a, a, a thirst for sin, a, a thirst for violence. And so in this context, God does not turn away from us, but rather he turns toward us in great mercy, sending his son, Jesus Christ. This phrase that says, he made us alive together with Christ, in my opinion, it indicates an extremely divine mystery. What do I mean by that? It's kind of hard to understand, but there's uh, a, a theme to the scripture of the redemptive plan that Christ, who is the word, in John 1, it says the word was in the beginning and the word was with God. The word was God. In the beginning was the word. And, and this word that God has spoken forth into his creation is none other than his very son, the son begotten from all ages past. And, and this son comes into the earth, and the, the same person who wrote John 1 calling Jesus the word of God or the logos or the divine uh, nature, the divine uh, truth, this very person became incarnate in the flesh. And yet in that same writer in John 1 also wrote 1 John 1, and it says, Christ who is the word of life. Jesus himself was the very uh, person by whom God created the world and established his, his created order. And yet this person, the Son of God, comes into the world, takes on human flesh, and dies. The author of life was killed on that cross 2,000 years ago, and because of this, we have been invited into this great mystery of salvation. Now, the mystery is this. The, the words made us alive together with Christ indicates to me a special time and a special place. 
So think it through. Christ was alive. He was born. We're going to celebrate his birth in, in a few months through uh, the wonderful season of Christmas and Advent. He was born. He lived. He died and was dead for, for a period of three days. And now he is alive again forevermore, never to die again. And so the word together indicates at least one thing, that God has raised us in the same manner, right? Together is, is, a, is a word. It means there's two things here, and if I'm going to act on this, I'm going to act on this other thing over here at the same time. And so it, it means that God has raised us in the same manner as Christ, but also that he in my mind, in this deeply mysterious way, he has raised us at the same time as Christ. Now, this accords with Paul's, uh, it is a mystery, uh, and I don't think you can definitely prove it, but it does accord with the fact that Paul says that God from before the foundations of the earth chose us in in his predestined plan. He elected us, as it were, from ages past. So that's an amazing thing, that God from all eternity past predestined you, and that at some time when Christ died and then was raised again, God raised us together with him. And moreover, I I think that's a a demonstrable uh, interpretation of that passage. Moreover, just as God chose us from the foundation of the world, he raised us with him, but also Paul continues to say that we who have been raised up with Christ We've been raised not just from death, but we've been raised into the heavenlies and seated with him where he is. Now, that is an amazing idea because you and I know we, our experience is we walk around on earth, we experience emotional things that happen to us based on time, space, realities, events that we experience, etc. But Paul says that we've been seated, we have been, past tense, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, how the Holy Spirit communicates and mediates that reality into our existence, uh, I can't explain. I don't think anyone can. But it is true. You right now, as a believer, if you, if you have been recreated in, in God's image, in Jesus Christ, you right now are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You're there by his Holy Spirit. You're there in a way that's true because the scripture cannot be broken. And that truth is what Paul is banking on is going to inform this new way of living that we're talking about today, these good works. And so we're here on earth. Um, but what is not a mystery, whether, whether we were raised at the time that Jesus was raised from the dead, and if we are in some real way, uh, or how we are in some real way in heaven, what is not a mystery at all, what is made completely plain, is that in verse uh, 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We had nothing to do with God choosing us and raising us from death. It says, God raised you from the dead and seated you with Christ. And so the question one of my main uh, one of my main phrases, I hope you memorize it, is what can a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man can do nothing. So this salvation is God's gift alone, and it is it is this salvation which provides the foundation for these good works that Paul is wanting to establish in this church. He explains that the purpose of God's redemption of sinful man is is that God would be glorified. In verse seven, he, he uses a connecting phrase, so that. So that is describing why God was rich in mercy, why he had great love, 
why he made us alive together with Christ, why God raised us up and seated us with him. He did that for a purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an amazing thing. How is God's grace immeasurably rich? We touched on this just a, a little bit, but it's important to note these specific words which communicate the reality of God's love and his mercy towards us. God's grace is inexhaustible in that it can't, can't be exhausted or used up. What do you have on your car? You have exhaust that, that comes out of the exhaust pipe. That exhausting process is that because that fuel is used up as you drive around, and there is a byproduct of carbon dioxide and other terrible things that you need to get out of the car, and that's exhaust. God's grace is inexhaustible in that God's grace isn't consumed up when, when it's used. It, it doesn't wear out. God's grace is resilient in that it does not fade or become ineffective through use. There, there are many things in your life that become ineffective through use. Uh, I, I've been cleaning my house for the last month with the wonderful help of my wife, and she's done way more cleaning than I have um, because she's just a better spouse. And, but while we're working, uh, while I was cleaning the carpets, I used up all of the carpet cleaner because it gets used up as you use it. You spray it, and then it's gone from the bottle. God's grace towards us isn't like that. God's grace is immeasurable in that we can't uh, go through it from time to time. Although it's shown to many people throughout the ages, God's supply remains the same. It's not as all, at all as if God just has a really cool bank account and you can keep writing checks against it and it'll run out. That's what we sang today in, in that song, Your Love Never, Never Fails. It never gives up. That, that idea that for the, for the believer who's been recreated in, in Christ, those who are truly God's elect, Jesus says, the sheep that God gives me, that the Father gives me, I lose none of them. And that is the, the surety that we bank on. So no other scenario, however, in, the, in this idea that God's grace is inexhaustible, that it, it doesn't become ineffective, and that it's innumerable or you couldn't count to the end, all of those things can only be experienced and understood in a time period of eternity future. That's what Paul is saying, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. That's what it means, that forever and ever that we will live with God on the earth, and that our existence will be to the praise of his glory in such a way that his kindness will be on display at all times. And so this is the exact cause of our salvation. This is the exact uh, goal of God's redemptive plan being wrought on the earth. This is, this is what God has wished to do so that his name would be glorified and that he would be demonstrated as righteous, holy, and glorious for all eternity. And that is the age to come, which Paul says is the goal of your salvation, Okay, you're not just getting saved. You're not just coming to God to get away from your problems, although he redeems us from our darkness. And you're not just getting, trying to come to God to escape fiery torment and hell, uh, although he does accomplish that for you. God, the reason God is saving you, the reason God is calling you and drawing you to himself is that he would be demonstrated as glorious for all eternity future. And this isn't a selfish desire from God because the glory that God receives in this is a self-giving love. 
towards the other the other members of the Trinity and towards his fallen creation, which he desires to redeem. That's a huge subject, but Paul has just dealt with these huge heaven and earth sized themes, and this is the foundation for your good works. May it never be the case that you go throughout your Christian life saying, man, I really need to read my Bible more because God would love me if I did that. Man, I really need to fast more. I just, you know, I'm not fasting like I should. I need, I need to pray more. I need to witness more. You don't need to do those things more. You will do those things more if your mind is renewed to the amazing truths that are at work in the gospel, that God moved heaven and earth to come in the flesh and, and redeem you. That he, that he went through the cross, the, the whipping and the scourging and the, the bloody death and the, the terrible shame and suffocation that he experienced on the cross, that Jesus let nothing get in his way to purchase you for himself. That's why we worship. That's what the book of Revelation presents in Revelation 4 and 5. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, power, strength. Worthy is the lamb for he has redeemed men to God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation by his own blood. And he's made them kings and priests in, the, in, in God's new created order. That is what the whole gospel is about. And these are the themes which inform your good works. Last week, I, I talked about how we need to celebrate Thanksgiving in a way that, is, that accords with godliness. That is, we are thankful for God's uh, provision for our life. And it's not to be this kind of just kind of blip on the radar in our calendar type of lifestyle. We're to be thankful for all of life. In the same manner that we talked about last week, we are to do good works in every aspect. But I'm telling you, you won't do good works unless you see the amazing good works that God has done for you. This is the righteousness upon which all of our life is founded, not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness alone. So he, Paul's just dealt with these huge themes of the fall, the rebellion, the atonement, the resurrection, the, the, created, uh, the new creation that you have been made into in Christ Jesus. And this is the structure for the church and the rest of, of this chapter and the rest of this book. He dealt with the themes earlier in chapter one. He then, you know, the chorus resounded in chapter two. And this gives the foundation for the rest of the chapter, which we won't look at today. But these are the good works. Now, I said that, that the reason God raised them from the dead, even when they were dead in trespasses, they were made alive with Christ, and that they were raised and up and seated with him in heavenly places. God did that for a reason, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. But that is all redounded into this phrase in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying the reason that you were saved, the reason that you were redeemed, taken out of darkness and put into the kingdom of light, is that you would do good works on the earth now in anticipation of the glory that's going to be demonstrated, the immeasurable riches that take eternity future to, to uh, even barely uh, get a glimpse of. And so this idea that, that our gospel walk, the way in which we live, is informed by our renewed mind uh, realizing these truths, having the Holy Spirit teach us these things, uh, that we don't walk as, as we used to walk. We don't walk any longer on this road of, of sin and death. We don't walk according to the lusts and the passions that once 
uh, reigned over us. We walk in a different way. We've entered by this narrow gate of Christ, and we are supposed to take up our cross and love our neighbor. This is, this is gospel-informed action. And so our manner of life becomes two things. It becomes evangelical or evangelistic in nature, and it also becomes prophetic. The way in which it does that is we're created in Christ Jesus for good works in this life, and in doing those good works, we produce a fragrant aroma to those around us who God is drawing to his kingdom. They see our manner of living, and they, they are drawn to it because they're, they're being drawn. God is choosing them. God is, God is calling them to, to come and to find, uh, find grace through his son Jesus. And as they're coming to that, they are supposed to see our good works and, and give glory to God. This is exactly what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the purpose of, of combating sin in your life. This is the purpose of establishing godly patterns, is that your lifestyle, your very way of life, would be evangelistic. It would, it would be a pleasing aroma to those who are outside and are, are being drawn by God. Not only that, it's a prophetic way of life in that it testifies against this evil age of its unrighteousness. And so what are these good works that we're being called to do? Now, this would be a bajillion part series uh, if we had time to even go into it. But I just want to highlight a, a few things that I think the New Testament over and over again is calling us to. It's first calling us to love God and then our neighbor, our spouse and our family, our children, those who are near to us and our family. It's calling us to teach the word in season, out of season. It's calling us to give to the poor. It's to pray for the sick, raise the dead. Jesus said, pray for the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, visit those who are in prison, etc., etc." He basically says, bring the kingdom. We're to feed the hungry. We're to visit the captives or those who are in prison. He, t- he encourages us to bring children to Christ, which is such a, a wonderful, precious truth. I don't know if you get to hear it. I get to hear it. But some of these little ones are beginning to say the creed along with us. That's beautiful. That's like, that's like strong man cries during a, an emotional movie kind of beautiful. That's amazing. People who are placing their faith in Christ, they're learning the faith. <clears throat> We're called to give sacrificially to the gospel to the point where it hurts, where we don't, uh, you know, where we, where we can't even uh, say that we even feel the pain anymore of our giving. We're to worship in song and we are to bear one another's burdens. These are the good works which are supposed to be like jewels around uh, in a, a magnificent ring that is the church. These are supposed to be things that accentuate and highlight and glorify and beautify the people of God. These are the things which are supposed to be redounding and, and you know, magnanimous in our lives. They're supposed to be in plentiful. And so with that, those things are only produced if we come to know uh, Jesus Christ. And whether we're zealous for good works already, many of us are already in this manner of life, or whether we've got uh, a, a lot of room to grow. Wherever you're at this morning, whether you, whether you need to grow or whether you need to just shore up the foundations, you won't do it in your own strength. You can only do it in response to the gospel. 
That's what the scriptures teach. That's what I believe Ephesians 2 is attempting to say. And, and I, I, I would just encourage you, if you feel at all lacking in this area, don't fix it by trying to fast more or read your Bible more or pray more. Do those things, but only do them in order that you would see Christ and that you would see what he's done for you. And the vision of Christ will be the death of everything else in your life. That will, that will liberate you from all of the things that are holding you back from good works now.